One of the greatest indicators of maturity, that is spiritual maturity, is that of attitude. At lunch just the other day, one of our employees referred to an uncooperative restaurant manager as having an attitude. That manager has an attitude. Well, Calvin and Hobbes described this situation uh, in a different perspective. Calvin is talking with the tiger Hobbes, and he says, You know what we need, Hobbes? We need an attitude. And the tiger Hobbes says, An attitude? And Calvin says, Yeah, you can't be cool if you don't have an attitude. And uh, Hobbes says, Really? And Calvin says, Sure, they're all the rage. Now, what kind of attitude could we have? Hobbes says, we could be courteously differential. And then Calvin sarcastically says, oh, good, that's real cool. (laughs) So we all have different attitudes, and I wonder what your attitude is, what my attitude is. Years ago at Ambassador College, you could hear someone say, That one, that person has a B.A., meaning that person has a bad attitude. But let's face it, we all have bad attitudes or a carnal attitude from time to time. But let me give you this caution. If someone disagrees with you, do not automatically accuse him or her of having a bad attitude. You've got a B.A., you know, a bad attitude because you don't agree with me. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. But let's face it, we all recognize bad attitudes in others, and hopefully we can recognize it in ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves. So I'd like to ask you today, what is your attitude? And that's the sermon title, What is Your Attitude? When we think back on the days of unleavened bread, we should strongly desire an unleavened attitude, an attitude of sincerity and truth. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So ask yourself, just how pure is my heart? We have in our sermon library, sermon number 49, How Pure Is Your Heart? And sermon number 504, Developing a Godly Heart. In 1963, Hollywood produced the movie titled, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. They had four mads in front of world. Well, we are inundated inundated by a crazy, carnal, mad world and mad messages every day. And we have to be alert to resist wrong attitudes. Satan certainly surcharges the airwaves looking for susceptible carnal minds yours and mine. When it comes to describing attitudes, the list is almost endless. Arrogance, selfishness, lust, greed, hostility, jealousy, envy. Have you experienced any of those attitudes? If you're a human being, you probably have at one time or another. I think of the word vanity as one of the attributes or characteristics of human nature, of selfishness. Calvin certainly expressed that one time when he said, people think it must be fun to be a super genius, 
but they don't realize how hard it is to put up with all the idiots in the world. He had a vanity about himself and looked down on other people. The carnal mind, let's turn to 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul gives a list of these carnal attitudes. And, of course, he's describing the end time, 2 Timothy 3. I'll have some of Dr. Meredith's tea here. I thank you for your prayers for my cough, and uh, certainly you can be praying to the sermon that I'll keep it down to about ten coughs maximum for the, the, the length of the sermon. Second Timothy 3, But know this, that in the last times perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, and how I've observed that, you probably observed that even in restaurants. I, I remember one time, and in, that was years ago, I think the, <clears throat> the father had a little girl at a restaurant. I mean, he was probably about 6'4", 250, muscular. The little girl was probably about three or four years old, just a little tot. And uh, the father in the restaurant, it's a public restaurant, the father says, um, Joni, you sit here. He said, no, Daddy, I'm not going to sit there. Joni, you sit there. No, I'm not going to sit there. Well, the six foot four, 250 pound muscular man gives in to the little girl. Okay, you can sit there. And this argument went on for, for quite some time. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure. Of course, that's promoted by all the marketers and media around the world. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Of course, God gives us the spirit of holiness, that is, the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. We need to be renewed daily with God's spirit. We need that power. From such of these people with these attitudes, he says, turn away. From such people turn away. These are worldly attitudes. Do we ever recognize any such attitude in us? Do we ever let down and give in to any one of these carnal attitudes? Perhaps Romans 8, 7 epitomizes the common attitude of all human beings. Romans 8, let's start there in verse 5. Romans 8 and verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's the carnal attitude. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. When you think about the universe and you meditate on God's creation and on His laws and on His design and on fulfilled prophecy and on His promises where we've had so many multitudes of answered prayer, think on those things that are spiritual. Verse 6, for to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So if you're not experiencing life and peace, think about this verse. Verse 7, because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. God's law is the way of love, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and 
loving our neighbors as ourselves. The NIV has the sinful mind is hostile to God. The Revised Standard has for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. This Herbert Armstrong in his book, Mystery of the Ages, chapter 1, wrote this about uh, hostility and the attitude of the carnal nature. Quote, most humans are passively hostile against God. They simply do not normally think about God. If God is mentioned, they become embarrassed and often try to change the subject. They probably do not realize in their own minds that they have a hostile attitude toward God. Yet that is the very reason psychologically why they want to avoid the subject. In other words, the average person has an unrealized passive hostility against God. Without realizing it actively, they want to keep, quote, God, uh, keep his nose out of their business, except at a time when they are in deep trouble and they cry out for God's help. That's on pages 37 and 38 of Mr. The Ages. It reminds me of um, one of the veterans I interviewed for assembly years ago in Big Sandy on World War II. And I interviewed quite a few of the veterans there in the campus, and one of them had been in the Battle of the Bulge. And he said he was about 18 years old at the time, and how frightening it was when some of those shells burst in the trees and just scattered all the shrapnel uh, all over the place. He said, there was not one individual there who wasn't praying and trying to remember his boyhood prayers. Mr. Armstrong says, except at a time when they are in deep trouble, they cry out for God's help. Well, it certainly happened in that case. But we have to recognize our own carnal nature. We must recognize that a carnal attitude, when it grabs a hold of us, and... Uh, Every once in a while, I, I recognize that, uh-oh, someone pushed my button, and I've got a response. An attitude is a response can be defined partly as a response. How are you going to respond when someone pushes your button, which is the vernacular for touched an emotional problem or sensitivity that you have, and you're going to respond to that? We have to be on guard against that. And understand that we have to be con in control of our attitudes at all times. We have to recognize wrong behavior. And every time I look at the newspaper, I see what's going on with some of our teenagers in Charlotte and some being uh, gunned down by mo mobs and this type of thing. You wonder, did any of those children growing up, did anyone teach them the Ten Commandments? Did anyone tell them, you shall not murder? That seed has to be sown. And um, we had a case here recently in which someone was trying to, was, let's say, evaluating our editorial content and thinking that we were political. My answer was, listen, whoever is in government, we don't evaluate according to politics. We evaluate according to the Ten Commandments. And God tells us to cry aloud and spare not and show my people their sins. If the government is sinning, if society is sinning, we are going to evaluate that according to the Ten Commandments and let people know it and tell them to repent. 
We need to teach our children, and I'm sure most of our children know here, we have a very good uh, Sabbath uh, lessons, and do all of them know the Ten Commandments short form? Well, okay, well, that's the next lesson. All right, thank you. All right, so we all need to know the Ten Commandments, and uh, so sometime, I've told you before, if I have trouble sleeping at night, I'll just go ahead and recite Exodus 20, verses 1 through 11, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the eternal your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And I'll go on with the, all of the Ten Commandments. I won't take time to do that now. I could. So, Dr. Fall, in his uh, successful parenting booklet, Chapter 3, says this, quote, Every parent who has disciplined a child has likely found at times that the child was crying not from sorrow or repentance, but from obvious anger. Anger is like a muscle, Dr. Fall writes. The more it is exercised, the more it will develop. If a child's anger is not addressed, the necessary lesson will not be learned, and nothing will be gained but a hardening of the child's attitude. In this circumstance, it becomes necessary to remind the child why he was disciplined in the first place and then explained that he will also be disciplined for his attitude of anger. In most cases, the child's attitude will change quickly, and his cry will turn to a repentant spirit, then a rebellion or anger, or then to rebellion or anger. So parents recognize that they discipline not only just for behavior, but for attitude as well. I know when I was a boy, when something went wrong, I wanted to cry. Now, well, I was crying, and I enjoyed the crying, one of those perverse things, you know. And uh, Mom would give me a glass of water. She knew how to stop my crying. I'd drink the cold water, and somehow I, I didn't cry anymore. So I didn't want Mom to give me the glass of water. You know, I, I wanted to have my own way and keep crying. That's the carnal mind, the carnal attitude. What other kinds of uh, attitudes are wrong and some that we display from time to time? We see in the church and church members. One of them is self-righteousness. We've had a sermon on that. Dr. Uh, Mr. Rod King gave a sermon on that about a year or two ago. It's in our church library on self-righteousness, sermon number 405. And then there's self-justification. When a church member is being guided by a minister or counseled, you can see the self-justification. Well, you don't understand. I did it because of this way and so forth, rather than coming to say, oh, yeah, I see my error. I acknowledge my error. I'm sorry about that. What is the most beautiful attitude? Well, there are many of them. Jesus talked about a child, that unless you have the attitude of a child, you won't enter the kingdom of God. What other attitudes do you think of that Christ gave as examples of a beautiful attitude? Of course, the Sermon on the Mount, we may talk about that a little later. But the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee was self-righteous, self-justifying. He said, well, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. I'm glad I'm not like these adulterers and uh, these publicans over here. But the publican beat upon his breast, I believe this is Luke the 18th chapter, and cried, said, God, be merciful to me, 
the, in the Greek, the definite article T-H-E, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said what? This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Self-justification is a carnal attitude and a carnal approach. Look at yourself and monitor your pattern of communication and see if you ever try to justify yourself. Now, that's not to say there are times when we need to set the record straight. In conflicts between people, someone may accuse you, and I've, I've played that game too. You know, that's uh, cashing in your anger stamp. I've told you that story before, how someone false accused me of stealing his racquetball, and I played the martyr and didn't say anything, you know. Second time... He accused me. I played the martyr, didn't say anything. Third time he accused me, I cashed in my anger stamp and really let him have it. You know, that's not the loving way of doing it. I should have at the first time set the record straight. Well, no, Joe, over here, I did not take your racquetball, etc., etc. Here is, I'm setting the record straight. And so we need to be able to have the kind of attitude that is not self-justifying, not self-righteous, but tries to be peacemaking by setting the record straight. And, of course, we have that example in Matthew 18:15 that uh, if your brother sins against you, go to him yourself and try to get the problem solved. There's the, I won't turn there, but the parable of the Good Samaritan, when Jesus taught him uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, and uh, the lawyer asked him, what is... Uh, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what's written in the law? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer gave the correct answer. But the scripture goes on to say, and he said to him, that is, Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But then Luke writes, but he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said... Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gave him the story of the Good Samaritan. We've seen in the ministry bad attitudes of those who have uh, left us. Some few who had the works of the flesh, as it's called in Galatians 5.20, selfish ambitions. We address this uh, issue and will at the uh, upcoming ministerial conference. Do you have selfish ambition? Ambition is good. That is setting goals in a godly way because you know that you want to serve God. You want to be able to serve more effectively. You want the knowledge, the skills, the gifts, the benefits, the blessings to be able to serve effectively, and that's fine. But selfish ambitions is given as one of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.20. And then there's self-will. How many of you seen, of course, there's the difference in children. And some children are, are very responsive, sensitive, uh, gentle. Others have a very strong will. And they have to be dealt with, uh, as Dr. Fall brings out in his successful parenting book. Do you have a self-will? God wants us to have a strong will, like the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul... He had enthusiasm, he had a strong will, he had determination. But when he was converted, those attributes were used to God's effectiveness and glory. We have a sermon in our library, number 109, self-will or God's will. 
And I hope that you're reading our Living Church News this January, February um, 2010 uh, issue. Uh, Mr. Apartian had an article, A Question of Attitude. And he described some of these wrong attitudes in his own inimitable way. Finding fault continually. Is that how often do we see people? I hope not often, but every once in a while we find someone. They are the critic, self-appointed critic. I mentioned to you before one church member years ago in one of the congregations I pastored. I called him a self, uh, what was a self-appointed spot remover. You know, he's going around criticizing everyone in the church for everything they did wrong. He was a critic. Well, he didn't last very long, of course, and we had to try to help him. But uh, Mr. Partian uh, designates that finding fault continually, being unwilling to forgive, another category Mr. Partian gives, feeling sorry for yourself, you know, self-pity. Well, what are you crying about? You know, here we heard in this wonderful sermonette by Dr. Pierre, our brethren in Haiti, some who've lost everything, and still want to obey God, still meet together for Sabbath services, not having anything. Did they have self-pity? Do they feel sorry for themselves? Well, certainly we can mourn. There's a time to mourn, and a time to be sad. Mr. Partian gives another one of those uh, attitudes that is not godly, and that's holier than thou, thou, the feeling holier than thou, just like the Pharisee and the, and the publican. Mr. Partian includes in that article a question of attitude in our January-February Living Church News. Quote, start the change now. Do not put it off. Your attitude is the key to making you a Christian after God's own heart and will unlock before you the door to the kingdom of God. So again, I ask you, what is your attitude? And in the two hours I have remaining, I'm going to give you ten unleavened attitudes. So think about the unleavened attitudes that uh, we should have. Let's turn to Philippians 2, verse 5. Again, there are so many powerful scriptures that show us the kind of heart, mind, and attitude we should have. Philippians 2 is so powerful and so poignant. Philippians chapter 2. And here talks about our Savior and what he was willing to do. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes, Philippians 2 and verse 5, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, as the margin has it, <clears throat> but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Unleavened attitude number one is attitude of service. Jesus Christ came as a bond servant. And as we kept the New Testament Passover, we followed his example and instruction in washing one another's feet. He humbled himself. He gave us the example of service. Is that a part of your very character? Is it a part of your very way of life? Is it a constant attitude, your constant mental position? 
Let's turn to Romans, the sixth chapter. Romans 6, this attitude of service. And we are thankful for so many during the Feast of Tabernacles. There so many of our men and women serve faithfully to make the feast so enjoyable, and they do regularly throughout the week and every Sabbath. We certainly appreciate those of you who are serving. But let's understand, people have different gifts of service. You know, you may... Uh, Romans the 12th chapter, 1 Corinthians the 12th chapter, list the various gifts. It may be a, a gift of ministering. It may be a gift of administrations. It may be a gift of faith. And we all have different gifts. So we shouldn't just compare ourselves among ourselves. We need to realize and examine ourselves, what is my gift that God has given me in order to serve effectively? In Romans the 6th chapter, verse 17, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin... Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So we are all slaves, that is servants, bondservants of righteousness. I've told you before about the woman in a former association who said, oh, I'm free, I'm free. What she meant was she was free from keeping the Sabbath. She was free from... Uh, maintaining clean and unclean mates, but she didn't realize that she was now a slave of practicing transgression of God's law. She became a slave of sin. She thought she was free. Well, she was free from righteousness, became a slave of sin. But we are slaves of righteousness, he says here. Verse 20, <clears throat> For when you were slaves of sin, you were made free to regard to righteousness. What fruit did it have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin, which is one of the lessons we had to the days of unleavened bread, we are set free from practicing sin. We are set free from the penalty of sin by Christ's shed blood. And as we repent, we're forgiven every time we sin. And having been become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. I won't turn there, but uh, James, well, let's turn to Luke, the second chapter, Luke 2, just to show different uh, ways of serving. James 1, verse 1, I won't turn there, but uh, he calls himself James, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 1 says, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter, 2 Peter 1, 1, says, Peter, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Do you consider yourself a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Well, here in Luke, the second chapter, we see an example of different kind of service. Here was uh, the prophetess Anna, and she was uh, rather an elderly lady. Luke 2, verse 37. Luke 2, verse 37. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but serve God. How? With fastings and prayers night and day. And God used her to bear witness to the Redeemer 
And coming in at that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who look for redemption in Jerusalem. So we have different ways of serving. We have uh, in our sermon library, Responsiveness and Service. That's um, number 564, Dr. Meredith's Sermon on Servant Leadership, number 476. So I hope you can uh, perhaps review those. When we think of someone who was responsive to God, who do you think about? Well, David is one. Acts 13.22, remember uh, Peter's talking about David and what was his characteristic? He's telling how God uh, raised up David and uh, removed King Saul and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. What an incredible statement to be made about someone who will be, of course, king of Israel, who will do all my will. And that's why we need to pray daily, you know, your will be done. You want to submit to God's will. David was a man after God's own heart. Dr. Winnale wrote in the September 2001 LCN article, Are you a person after God's own heart. And he shows how Christ was a person after God's, his Father's own heart, and doing his will. Dr. Douglas Winnale writes, quote, The examples of Abraham, Moses, David, Hannah, and many others are recorded in Scripture as examples for us to follow. We must learn from those examples and strive to become people after God's own heart so we can be in his kingdom because this is the real purpose for human existence. End of quote. So attitude number one is attitude of service. Attitude number two is an attitude of humility. And, of course, we found that in Philippians 2.8, where we read, And being found in appearance as a man, he, Christ, humbled himself and became obedient became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let's turn to uh, Isaiah 66. It's another memorization verse, Isaiah 66. Or do you have the attitude of humility? Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. God says, where is the house that you build me? And where is the place of my rest? God inhabits eternity. He is in heaven. He created all things. Nothing is out of his reach or out of his sense of touch and knowledge. For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the eternal. But on this one will I look. Who? What kind of attitude on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word? Now, let's be honest. I'm not asking you to raise your hands. But how many of you have not ever trembled at God's word? Ask God to help you to see him and know him and to understand his power. I told you before the story of when I was asking God to show me his power and greatness, and 
I was in my dormitory <clears throat> there in uh, Pasadena at Ambassador College, and uh, I was kneeling on the floor and praying and asking God to show me um, my relationship to Him. And in the microsecond, my eye flashed on the cover of a Lifetime book, which had on the cover of a photo of galaxies and all of this part of the universe. My, in a microsecond, I said, where am I in that picture? Well, <clears throat> in comparison, where was planet Earth? If it were in that picture, it would have been smaller than a pinprick. You couldn't even find planet Earth. So small. And where am I on that little planet Earth, that little dot? And I began to tremble right then and there. I prostrated myself on the floor, realizing the power and awe and greatness of God compared to me. That I am nothing in comparison to God. But let me, let you, let me explain, of course, we are something because God places extreme value on you because he sent his son to shed his blood for you. So he values each and every one of us extremely highly to the extent that he gave us the priceless gift of his, shed, his son's shed blood for us to be forgiven. Do you have the attitude of humility? Who trembles at my word? In the Tomorrow's World magazine, July, August 2001, Dr. Meredith had an article, What is your attitude toward the Bible? Quote, do you view the Bible as the real authority in your life? Do you feel it was directly inspired by God? Or do you think of it as just a good book with wise sayings? Coming to understand and to live the right answer to these questions is a major key to attaining eternal life. End of quote. And I'm disappointed. I hope uh, my observations are skewed or not accurate, but it seems to me that Sometimes I see church brethren who are just not even opening their Bibles, not checking up on us as we tell everyone to do. And I'm wondering, really, have you had a personal contact with the Word of God, the Bible? Does it mean anything to you? When you read it, is God talking to you? What attitude do we need to have? We need to have that humble attitude in which God says, To this man will I look, to this one, on him who is poor in a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. The attitude of humility is shown in Micah 6, 8. Of course, I won't turn there. Another memorization verse. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk or live humbly with your God. It's a memorization verse, it's a character verse, and it's a way of life verse. Attitude number two, do you have an attitude of humility? Attitude number three is an attitude of repentance. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the seventh chapter. I gave this in a sermon on the fast day. But uh, again, good to review from time to time. <clears throat> the attitude of repentance. Remember, 1 Corinthians was one of the strongest corrective letters the Apostle Paul ever gave. And he was concerned that he might have been too strong in his correction. 
But then he was pleased to see that there were fruits of change within the Corinthian congregation. And so he said, uh, verse 9, 2 Corinthians 7, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And then he gives these characteristics, these fruits of godly sorrow. There's a sorrow of the world that works death. The, the criminal is caught and he's sorry. Well, why is he sorry? He's sorry he got caught. He's sorry he has to pay the penalty. But he's not sorry for having committed the crime because if he goes out, he's going to do the same crime over and over again. Now, we hope that there are those who are God is calling and we minister to in prison that have genuine repentance and that they will have a repulsion, a revulsion to their sins of the past and do not want to ever repeat the sins of the past. So these are the fruits of godly sorrow. Verse 11, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, there's that uh, righteous indignation where you are angry at sin. You know, Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy in the froward or evil mouth do I hate, says God. So we need to get angry at sin. Uh, we, uh, I won't mention his name, but he's here in the congregation who gave an attack speech at uh, one of our spokesman clubs here and uh, was really attacking, as he should, the evil. And he pounded on the lectern, and the lectern demolished. So uh, he passed the uh, speech assignment, and he did uh, very well. Not only with the uh, pounding of the lectern, but with the words, of course, and attacking evil. What fear? Fear the penalty, having that awe of God. What vehement desire, a desire to do right. What zeal, not lukewarm, but zealous. What vindication. In all things you prove yourselves to be clear in this matter. Remember Job, when he repented, said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's true repentance. It has to happen sometime in one's life. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7.24 said, O wretched man that I am, who shall save me from the body of this death? I thank God it shall be through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Mr. Herbert Armstrong in his autobiography, volume 1, chapter 17 described his experience after repentance and baptism. Quote, Immediately upon coming out of the water, I definitely experienced a change in attitude and in mind generally. I had already repented and surrendered to God's rule over my life. The natural carnal hostility to God and His law already had gone. Yet now for the first time, I felt clean. I knew now that the terribly heavy load of sin had been taken off my shoulders. Christ had paid the penalty for me. All past sins were now blotted out by His blood. My conscience was clean and clear. For the first time in my life, I experienced real inner peace of mind. 
I realized as never before how futile and useless and foolish are the ways of this world on which most people set so much store. There was a quiet, wonderful happiness of mind in the sure knowledge that now I was actually a begotten son of God, I could really call God Father. End of quote. So, brethren, we need to attain, maintain an attitude of repentance. And remember Psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Attitude number three is an attitude of repentance. Attitude number four is actively loving God. You want to hear Dr. Meredith's sermon, The Great Commandment, number 562. He's given in this past year, Mark 12, verses 29 through 31. But I won't turn there. And you know 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God. What is the love of God? That we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome or grievous. Let's turn to Ephesians, the third chapter. Ephesians 3. How do we actively love God? Well, of course, a former association would say, This is all ritual. Well... If uh, God's Word says to do something, uh, hopefully we'll respond to it. Ephesians 3, uh, verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. We are talking to someone recently, and uh, I just happened to ask, you know, well, uh, do you pray regularly? Oh, yes, I pray regularly. Do you ever pray on your knees? Um, no. Well, I read this verse here to him, and I said, you suggest, you know, at least you get, need to get down on your knees for a few minutes every day. There are those, of course, of us that uh, have certain physical ailments and we're unable to get down on our knees, but for those of us who can, that's God's instruction to you. Now, I enjoy praying as I'm walking, enjoy sitting uh, you know, by a fountain and pray and pray at any time. He said to be instant in prayer and to pray without ceasing. You can pray anytime, anywhere. Of course, that one by Edgar Guest, the praying is prayer I ever prayed as the man fell, farmer fell down into the well, so it was, uh, was a standing on my head. It was praying as prayer he ever prayed. So, you know, when we're in trouble, we can pr- cry out to God. But we do need to be on our knees before God. Let's turn to, uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 and 14. Again, the Protestants will say, well, the fear of God is primitive. You see, once you love God, then you no longer fear God. Well, that's that logical fallacy uh, called the either-or fallacy. Either you love God or you fear God. That's a fallacy. You love God and you fear God, and that's exactly what... It says here in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the eternal your God require of you but to fear the eternal your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul? You love God and you fear God. 
That is a complete way of worship. Is a complete way of loving God. So number four is an attitude of actively loving God. Well, one more scripture on that. We could go with the whole sermon, of course, on that. But um, we have a Bible study schedule for 5.30, so I probably should cut a little early. Five, chapter 5, verse 18 of Ephesians. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. How do you worship God? How do you love Him? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do you know any psalms, spiritual songs, or melodies? I, it was 1984. We were on the Jerusalem dig with all the ambassador students, and Mr. Armstrong came to the Hilton. And uh, we didn't have any hymnals. And so I had to lead songs and trying to think, what songs do we know? Well, it was America the Beautiful, um, Psalm 1, Blessed and Happy is the Man, and Onward Christian Soldiers. And I could think of two or three other songs that uh, I was able to lead and our students knew without having any hymnals. And uh, we should try that. One of our song services or hymn sings uh, have to try doing that without a hymn and see how we do. But uh, do you know any hymns and psalms? But uh, that is the way we do it. Uh, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing making melody in your heart to the Lord. God wants you to do that. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So being a thankful person is so very important. Number four attitude is actively loving God. Number five, simply an attitude of thanksgiving, which we just read here in Ephesians 5, verse 20. Let's turn to Colossians 2. Colossians 2 and uh, verse 6. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 2. Again, I've shared with you some of my favorite scriptures, and Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, is one of my uh, 100 favorites. How many favorites do you have? Colossians 2.6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in Him. It's a way of life. You reflect the attitude, the actions, the behaviors of Christ, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught. Do you have a teachable attitude? We had in the uh, church bulletin today, Dr. Douglas Winnale's commentary about having a teachable attitude. As you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. We need that thankful attitude. Colossians 3, across the page. Verse 17, you can read the whole section actually, verses 12 through 17. We'll just read verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So abounding in thanksgiving, Colossians 2.7, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You know, it's amazing when uh, you have done something for someone else and someone says thank you, and you appreciate that. But oftentimes, sometimes I'm impressed when someone thanks you more than once. I go, oh, well, that's wonderful. 
So sometimes when I thank God, I just don't say thank you. I say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So abounding with thanksgiving. Now, one of the characteristics that is in harmony with the thankful attitude, and I won't turn there, but it's uh, Philippians 2.14 that ties in with uh, the Israelites coming out of Egypt. You know, there was Edward G. Robinson, you know, he said, Are there no graves in Egypt that you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? The, the same kind of, that was Dathan, by the way. No, I'm sorry, it was Edward G. Robinson. But what was their characteristic? They complained. What does Philippians 2.14 say? Do all things without complaining and disputing. Oh, what is your attitude with respect to Philippians 2.14? Okay, no, raise your hand. No, no, don't raise your hands. How many of you have already complained this morning, even up till now? Don't raise your hands. Uh, and I've tried to let you know before that sometimes describing a problem is not necessarily complaining. We need to evaluate, analyze problems, and analyze solutions. But the King James Version says, Philippians 2.14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. The NIV says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Let's try to work on that this week. And uh, maybe as Benjamin Franklin did when he was working on the characteristics, you know, he had a list, and I think Mr. Charles O'Gwin uh, mentioned that in one of his sermons. He put a check mark after every time he faulted on one of the characteristics like silence or discipline or uh, one of the characteristics in his autobiography. Maybe what we could do as a congregation is to put a check mark uh, every time we complain this week, and next week, I'll ask you at Sabbath service how many check marks you have for your complaints and murmurings. No, I won't do that. But, but uh, nonetheless, uh, God says, do all things without complaining and disputing. And a thankful attitude will help you. So attitude number five is an attitude of thanksgiving. Attitude number six is an attitude of faith. Let's turn back to Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3. Dr. Pierre in the sermonette showed that our Haitian brethren had faith, even though many of them lost th everything, some of them lost everything, and yet they still met together in faith, keeping the Sabbath, worshiping God on the Sabbath. They had to have courage. They had to have faith. And, of course, that is the way of life of the Christian, is the way of faith, of trusting God. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, again, another one of my favorite 100 scriptures. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That trust is faith. And lean not to your own understanding. Well, I don't understand why God allowed this to happen this way. Now, we can try to analyze cause and effect, and we should. But if we can't understand, and we're not trying to uh, impute motives, we're trying to, again, cooperate with God and realize Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Proverbs 3.6, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. And I, I used to be a little uh, reticent when we're 
going out the door. My wife uh, wants to do some shopping, and I'm taking her shopping, which is, uh, uh, I don't complain about, by the way. It's not one of my favorite activities, not one of my top 100 activities to go shopping, take my wife shopping. But she'll say, well, let's, let's pray about it first. Okay. All right. I'll pray. So we, we uh, say a quick prayer and ask God to bless our shopping, and God bless our shopping. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he shall direct your paths. I won't comment further. Let's go to uh, Psalm 37.4. Psalm 37.4. But I do appreciate my wife in giving me that encouragement to acknowledge God in all our ways. Psalm 37 and verse 4. Again, one of the many golden promises God gives. Trust, starting with verse 3, sorry, verse 4 is the great promise, but verse 3 leads up to it. Psalm 37, 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the eternal, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5. Commit your way to the eternal. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. It was one of those wonderful promises that God gives. He doesn't say when or how. But I've uh, let God know the desires of my heart. And uh, God has given me some wonderful promises, fulfilled them in wonderful ways, exceeding abundantly above all that I could think to ask or imagine. That's Ephesians 3.20 as a promise as well. Mr. Party, in one of his sermons I was listening to recently, uh, quoted Hebrews 11.6, and we've quoted in some of our sermons, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So one of those health laws is that of having a positive mental attitude. We need to pray that we can live each day by faith when you get up, that you want God, God's guidance. You're putting your life into God's hands from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. But I know that over the years, uh, Dr. Meredith's booklet on the seven laws of radiant health has helped me with one of the major laws, maintain a positive and tranquil mind. You know, when things go wrong, my wife and I were going cross-country, dark at night. My car got stuck, went off the road in the mud. And, uh, you know, what are we going to do? Count it all joy. You're out in the middle of nowhere, your car's stuck in mud. Oh, oh, count it joy. Okay, here I am counting it joy. <clears throat> but you ask God for deliverance, and there was a light in a farmhouse. Must have been, I don't know what time, it was 9.30 at night or something like that, and walked up, and the farmer was able to, kind enough to get his tractor and pull us out of the mud. But we learn faith, we learn trust in God to maintain a positive and tranquil mind. Again, Calvin was trying to maintain a positive and tranquil mind doing his homework. He said, I like homework. Homework makes me happy. Then he sits down at his desk and says, I don't want to go outside. I want to do math problems. Then the next one, he gives up and gives an expletive, which I won't share here. And then he says, my brain always rejects attitude transplants. So 
He tried to be positive unsuccessfully. No. We need a brain transplant. We need God's mind. Let this mind be within you. We need that positive attitude. You know, during the days of unleavened bread, we often quote uh, the uh, Numbers uh, 1230, in which uh, 1330, where Caleb was one of the spies. Joshua and Caleb were the only two positive ones out of the 12 spies. And what was Caleb's comment in Numbers 12.30? He said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. I shouldn't comment, but uh, uh, someone was criticizing me recently and uh, uh, for something in the coworker letter. And... Uh, because I didn't attach that the uh, phrase that, well, through God or God's going to help us. Well, the implication was, of course, the context was, of course, that Caleb wasn't going to do it on his own. He knew that God was going to help them to overcome the enemies of the land. We are well able to overcome it, implied that God was going to be with him doing it, of course. And Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing of value lasting value. And so we need that positive attitude. There's a song, and I'm still, I mention this, I think, almost every year, but I've yet to find a congregation that will sing this for us during the days of Unleavened Bread. It was a tune composed in 1835 by M. Durham, the lyrics written by Samuel Stennett in 1787. I am bound for the promised land. I won't try to sing it for you. I am bound for the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Oh, my wife's looking down here. (laughs) But uh, that positive attitude, we are bound for the kingdom. We all need that positive attitude. Number six is an attitude of faith. God has called us all to be men, women, and children of faith. Number seven is an attitude of persevering. Let's turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews 12. And again, these are so powerful scriptures. As Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and life. The scriptures are God-breathed, as the Greek is in 2 Timothy 2, 3, 16. Is it Hebrews uh, 12th chapter, where we find the principle of persevering and how Christ endured, as we saw even in Philippians 2.5, that he was obedient even to the death of the, the cross. Hebrews 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and how wonderful it is that we are inspired and encouraged not only by the biblical saints, but the saints who have died in our age in the past 10, 20, 50 years. And I know some of you have visited people who are dying of cancer and and seen in their nature, their character, such spiritual maturity that I would call him or her a saint. We're all saints who have God's Holy Spirit, but in these cases of those individuals dying of cancer, They had a spiritual maturity far beyond my spiritual maturity at that point in time. 
Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance, with perseverance, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we need to look to our Savior. He is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. All of the earth is going to go up to Jerusalem by representation and worship Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our living, loving, powerful Savior. He is our high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. He loves each and every one of us, and He is working with us individually to learn whatever lessons we need to learn and to be perfected into His image, His character, His nature. We need the attitude of persevering. So be determined, be committed to go forward in faith. We had the uh, sermon number 574, Principles for Persevering. And of course, Matthew 24, 13, He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Number eight is the attitude of producing spiritual fruit. Let's turn to Galatians 5, verse 22. Galatians 5, there have the fruits of the Spirit listed. I mentioned earlier the works of the flesh that are mentioned in verse 20. Verse 19 and 20, including selfish ambitions. And then we have the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22 is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. It's kind of ironic in one sense that those who have a carnal mind just rebel against God's law. And they think, well, there's no law against this, no law against that. Well, yes, there is. There's cause and effect. But God says there is no law against producing the fruits of the Spirit. And so we all need that. And uh, so those of you who rebel against law, uh, here's something that uh, you uh, will find there is no law against, and that's producing the fruits of the Holy Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, verse 25, let, a, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. <clears throat> it's a good thing I recognize the wrong reference here in my notes. 2 Corinthians 3. <coughs> Starting with verse 18. Uh, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We're living His way of life. Verse 8. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed 
into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Spirit of the Lord. So we are being transformed into the very character and mind of Christ, as it tells us in Romans 8.29, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So we are being conformed to the very nature and mind and character of Christ. That's our purpose. We're all different in personality, different in gifts, but we all need that depth of spiritual character. The NIV has it this way, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, and so when someone sees us, he or she should be able to see the love of God in us, see some of the fruits of God's Spirit, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So it's an ongoing process, and we are being molded into the very mind and character of Christ. And of course, he tells us in John 15:8, Herein is my Father glorified, Jesus said, that you bear much fruit. So I hope that you're praying that. We need the attitude of producing spiritual fruit. Number nine is the attitude of overcoming. I just quoted Caleb in Numbers 13.30, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Let's turn to uh, Romans 8, verse 37. Again, these are so encouraging scriptures to show that we are physical, we are weak, and yet with God's power, we can make those changes in character. We can repent. We can learn the lessons of the past. And, of course, as uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter wrote one time, he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I don't have that reference handy, but, you know, when you put your hand on a hot stove, you realize, hey, I'm not going to put my hand on that hot stove again. And some of us have had to learn the hard way that sin brings pain and suffering, and I don't want to do that anymore. And the whole world is going to experience that. Of course, as we've had in our telecast on Heaven, Hell, and uh, Your Future, that just aired uh, recently, uh, who's going to be in the White Throne Judgment? Those who were burned to a crisp in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they will remember the pain of their flesh burning off their bones when they come up in the white throne judgment, and they will not want to commit those sins anymore. Jesus said it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you, talking about Capernaum or Tyre or Sidon, than for you in the judgment. And sometimes it takes a great deal of suffering and pain for us to learn whatever lessons we need to learn. But God gives us the promise of overcoming. And here in Romans, the 8th chapter, in verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Yes, we can be victorious. We can be overcomers. We have to judge ourselves. And uh, that's such a, a probably a, a neglected discipline. I think I shared with you before this uh, comic strip by P Pickles about Grandma and Grandpa. You know, they're sitting down at the restaurant counter, and uh, Grandpa looks down at the uh, end of the counter. He says, Judy, do you see that elderly couple down at the other end of the, co the counter? 
And she looks down and says, yeah, what about them? And he looks at her and says, I was just thinking, that's probably what you and I will look like in about 10 years or so. And she looks at him and says, you do realize that's a mirror at the end of the counter, don't you? <laughs> so sometimes we do not judge ourselves as others see us. Robert Burns' famous line, oh, God give us the gift to see ourselves as, as others see us. And we do need to judge ourselves. Let's turn back to Job, 32nd chapter, <clears throat> Job 31. And, of course, Job's three friends were unable to identify Job's problems. But the young man who waited to talk until everyone was finished, God used him to point out the true problem and what Job should have said instead of chapter after chapter saying that he was righteous, saying that he needed to be vindicated. <clears throat> of course, God did bless him in knowing that he was dedicated, he was loyal, to God and was willing to go through that suffering to learn a very lasting and deep lesson. Job 32 and uh, verse 1. Job 32 verse 1. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Well, people argue and say, well, Job wasn't uh, self-righteous. Well, just read what it says here in Job 32 verse 1. And Job certainly set us an example of faithfulness. Job uh, 34, chapter 31, is the lesson that Elihu pinpointed and one that uh, Job should have understood. Verse 31, Job 34, Elihu says to Job and his three friends, For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Has anyone ever said that, Elihu says? In other words, you're going through a trial you don't understand while you're going through the trial. But you should say, or Job should have said, I'm, I'm being chastened. I don't know why, I don't understand, but if I have done iniquity and I don't know what iniquity I've done, uh, my attitude is, I will not do it anymore. That should have been Job's response for all the suffering that he experienced. It's a very poignant lesson, a very significant lesson for all of us to understand that if we don't understand why we're being chastened, this should be our response. We will not sin anymore if we have sinned and God shows us what we need to change. Then, of course, Job had the proper response, as we quoted earlier, Job 42.6, For therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So we do need to overcome. We need to overcome ourselves. We need to overcome the world. We need to overcome Satan. And we need to again examine ourselves and know that we are the ones who really need to make changes in our lives. So number nine is the attitude of overcoming. Number 10 is the attitude of accomplishing God's work. And you know John 4.34, when um, they said, well, he hasn't anything to eat. And Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And all of us are here because we realize that's the mission that God has given us, to do his work, to 
preach the gospel of the kingdom as a witness to the world, to warn the Western nations of a great tribulation coming, to feed the flock. And we're dedicated to that mission. We are living sacrifices, as it tells us in Romans, the 12th chapter. We need that attitude of accomplishing God's work. In the August 28, 1967 co-worker letter, Mr. Armstrong made this comment, and we've all, many of us, have made the same observation, but he did this in a co-worker of 1967. Quote, and I repeat again, in the 33 and a half years of this work, I have noticed that those who grow spiritually are those whose hearts and interests are in the work, God's work. And so we're very thankful that Christ is opening doors. He's blessing us with new opportunities and growth. We're thankful for the 8% growth in uh, church attendance uh, each of the three months of this uh, calendar year, January, February, and March. And uh, some of that, of course, is due to uh, the telecast and uh, the magazine, personal relationships with people. But some of it is due to the Tomorrow's World special presentations. We call them Tomorrow's World Bible Lectures. <clears throat> By the end of June, we will have had 59 uh, Bible Lectures in various cities throughout the United States, the Caribbean. Of course, Mr. Rod King did two of them, one in Pretoria and one in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, he holds a record, I think, for 225 uh, subscribers there in Cape Town. And um, Dr. Meredith spoke to uh, an audience of over 130, I believe it was, uh, subscribers in Joplin, Missouri, just a couple weeks ago. And um, I spoke in uh, Atlanta some weeks ago. We'll be going to New York on uh, May 8th to speak to uh, uh, subscribers right in Manhattan on 44th Street and then to Los Angeles uh, the following Sabbath, uh, May 8th. And Dr. Winnale just gotten back from Rhode Island uh, with his uh, Bible lecture. So uh, we're very thankful, and I would encourage all of you who have access to uh, the website to look on our homepage website. And there you see on the following column, in red, all of the Tomorrow's World presentations, the date and the city. Uh, where they're doing. Mr. Weston has been doing, he's done about eight so far this year, and uh, still going strong, doing more uh, Bible lectures in Canada. So be praying for that. God's work is going forward. We're thankful for those blessings. And of course, this coming week, Thursday and Friday, we have the Council of Elders session right here in this building. Uh, we'd appreciate your prayers for that conference. And the following week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we have the general conference, general ministerial conference, the first conference in four years. We'll be meeting at the University Hilton. That's where we'll be meeting next Sabbath for Sabbath services. We'll have probably about uh, 40 or 50 ministers and wives that will come ahead of that Sabbath. And then the following Sunday, we'll have quite a few more coming. But please pray about this volcanic eruption in Iceland with the ash. It might delay some of our ministers being able to come to the conference from Europe and uh, other places where that ash is canceling flights uh, from many, up to 85% of the flights and 100% of the flights in some areas. So uh, we would appreciate that uh, God will intervene and that our ministers can come from all over the world. We have 
Mr. Rajan Moses coming from Malaysia. We have ministers from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, from Europe, from uh, Kenya, if Mr. Musama can get here safely. Um, we uh, are looking forward to that. So uh, be praying for the ministerial conference coming up. We're expecting is about 250, Dr. Winnell, about 250 ministers and wives for the conference. So today we briefly discuss ten godly attitudes. And if Christ is living his life in you, you will radiate these attitudes in the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. We realize we're human and we have our own weaknesses, but we have to seek God with our whole heart. I would uh, like to assign you to read slowly the Beatitudes or the beautiful attitudes in Matthew 5, starting with verse 3. Meditate on each of those attitudes and see if I'm pure in heart, if I'm poor in spirit, if I am meek, if I am hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So let's thank God that through His Spirit we can overcome. We can live, we can think, we can act with a pure heart. And pray that you and I can grow in the ten attitudes, service, Humility, repentance, loving God, thanksgiving, faith, persevering, bearing spiritual fruit, overcoming, and accomplishing God's work. Again, Mr. Armstrong wrote, and let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. In a November 18, 1974 co-worker letter, seven years after the previous one. He said, And God has given us the work to do as the very means by which we may grow spiritually so we may enter His kingdom at Christ's coming. In 47 years, I have observed that only those whose hearts are fully in the work continue to overcome and grow spiritually and endure. 1 Corinthians 15 starting with verse 57. is a very encouraging verse that I like and take an encouragement from. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So thank God for the victory Let's always abound in the work of the Lord. Let us always monitor our attitudes because Satan would like to have you get angry and get bitter. Be on guard and remember Christ's attitude as we read in Philippians 2.5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, brethren, let's have the mind of Christ. Let's have his loving, serving, spiritual attitude.